0: Root Simple Podcast. Low-tech, home-tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 18, I talked to Wendy Tremaine and Mikey Sklar of the blog Holy Scrap Hot Springs. Wendy is also the author of a book of their experiences called The Good Life Lab, Radical Experiments in Hands-On Living. I thought I'd read an excerpt from the introduction. As we moved away from consumer goods and services and learned to replace them with what we could make ourselves, We became interested in, and better versed in, many types of knowledge—biology, chemistry, botany, construction, physics, herbalism, and electronics, to name a few. We found ourselves doing everything from textile design to car repair. We came to this lifestyle with no special skills or talents, just a bit of courage, inspiration, and genuine curiosity. You can bet we made plenty of mistakes and you're going to hear about some of them. Yet we were able to achieve most of what we'd set out to do. Today, we happily live on a homestead that we designed and constructed ourselves, grow and wildcraft our own food and medicine, make our own household goods and fuel, and produce our own power, not because we're super talented, but because we're human beings, and human beings are inherently creative. Kelly had a scheduling conflict, she's taking a sewing class, and was unable to join us in the conversation. She'll be back on the podcast next week. And now, my conversation with Wendy Tremaine and Mikey Sklar. Welcome, Wendy and Mikey, to the Root Simple Podcast.
1: Hi, Eric. So good to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah,
0: good to finally connect up with you guys. It's been so long. I think our blogs began about the same year almost. We've been oh, there for a funny. long time. It yeah, was
1: a pretty similar time. And we're still here.
0: You're still. We're all still blogging. <laughs> <laughs> so backing up a little bit for people who may not be familiar with your blog and your book, you began in New York and made a big jump to move to New Mexico. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Your life in New York City and what prompted you to make such a a bold move?
2: Well, um, we probably had a kind of classic life in New York City um, in some ways, you know, for people who live in cities and are in their uh, 30s, which is um, when Mike and I met, we had really big career jobs. And, um, you know, getting together, I guess every new relationship opens new things up for people. When we got together, we found we had a lot in common, which included dissatisfaction in those career jobs that we worked so hard to get. And um, we also just started noticing some other things like the worst decisions we ever made in our lives. We realized were always made around money compromises due to um, the fearing not having enough money or things like that. Um, So we went, we wound up gathering a bunch of um, data, like our lifestyle made us feel like consumers and part of a problem, and we wanted to be part of a solution. So um, I think it was around that time, I heard the Krishnamurti quote that I always keep in my pocket, which is, it's no sign of wellness to be well adjusted to a sick society. And um, And that just stung, you know, it was the right moment to hear it. And so with these kind of things going on in our lives, really busy jobs, lots of commuting, um, compromises, we just started to crack it, you know, open this egg of like, well, what else can we do? Well, what other ways are there to live? Um, And I think also, if I'm right, Mikey, in New York at that time, we were making stuff. We were going to Burning Man and we started making stuff and learning to weld and we really wanted to make Bigger stuff, but we were so limited with these little apartments, you know, and no time. So that was
1: a big part of uh, a decision to leave.
0: And how did you decide on where you ended up, which is a small town in in New Mexico? Uh,
1: Well, we looked at a lot of different places. Originally, we just looked at upstate New York, which a lot of other uh, of our friends ended up doing going to Hudson Valley up there. Um, We went out to San Francisco, we went to Panama, we just kind of went all over like trying to get a feel for different areas and it was um, most of the problem for us was it was either too expensive to go to these areas because I would immediately have to get another job and same for Wendy, um, or it was just too difficult for us to really envision it working like Panama it's so difficult just to get mail there. That kind of breaks down a lot of the things we depend on. So um, we ended up just coming to Truth or Consequences in New Mexico to visit um, some friends for a week. And um, we had a really good time. We came around Thanksgiving and immediately we realized there's a community here. And we were invited to some people's house that we'd never met. And there was maybe 20, 25 people there. And immediately we met like a core community of this town. And we're like, Wow, this is great. Like it's it's the middle of nowhere, but there's something going on that people are working together. And the town was
2: pioneering at the time there was this real spirit like uh, people from cities were moving here and buying up all the little storefronts on Main Street and Broadway, and it was exciting, you know, it was like they had all these signs in their windows like open one-ish to three, like they were rewriting the rules, and they were like I'm not going to be open those regular hours like the rest of the world, I came here to do it differently, so it, it spoke to where we were at at the time. Yeah, so
1: it was cheap and there was something happening.
0: Tell me tell me a little more about the community, so you're saying a lot of people came from from outside from big cities, uh is that, is that still true? How, is, how has the community evolved since you've been there?
2: It is still true. Um, this community here seems to go in waves. And the locals who've been here longer than us, even though we are now 10 years almost, um, speak about these waves. So it's like there'll be a, a year where a lot of people move in and there's a lot of new energy and the stores are all open. And then... There'll be like a settling year where it kind of gets sparse and a lot of people quit and don't make it and leave and then new people come in. It's very cyclic.
0: How have you made it work for you? And I, you know, this, this is, I, I almost hate this kind of question, but people are going to ask, Like, how do you make a living going from, sounds like you, you both had pretty good jobs in the big city. How do you transition to, to making things work in a small town?
1: Well, that was, that's a difficult adjustment, you know, like going from like a significant salary to like, we can't buy those things that other people have and we can't stay in this nice hotel anymore.
2: That's, Get out the, camp, uh, the camping gear. We still struggle
1: with those issues. Um, you know, we basically went down to like a 10th of what we used to have. And uh, that's a huge change. And I think initially in the early years we had savings, so we could kind of burn cash and do projects but you know by about four years in, which is about four years ago, we've been here eight years, we were pretty much running out of that cash and uh, we didn't want to spend more because it was just going too deep now. So uh, we had to figure out some alternative ways of making a living. So right now we survive through an online income. Um, I have kits, Wendy has some herbal remedies. I sell right now. I only have one kit shipping, which is a battery charger, and it it works on uh, recovering batteries which are quite weak or have been sitting for a long time. And most chargers won't even work with those kind of batteries. Uh, the other thing is um, we uh, well eBay. We've become pretty good eBayers, pretty yeah. good at eBay. And so we travel out on weekends to fancier towns and buy their junk, buy their junk, and <laughs> put <it> on eBay.
2: <laughs> and then, well, what's nice though is it's a lifestyle of. That I think is really appropriate in this day that we're living in because it's really about how much can you adapt to a changing world around you. So we have like lots of different ways we can make money and we rely on none of them exclusively. So I'll also teach and I teach yoga, meditation, I run um, some classes, I produce some local events, like, you know, it's very fluid. And I think one part, you might have um, forgot to mention, Mikey, that's really primary because we're so used to it is we make the things we used to buy. And by doing so, we make much higher quality goods than we could now afford because our incomes have dropped so much, you know. So we're still getting the highest quality goods, but not because we're paying money. It's because we're willing to make them.
0: You have a really impressive list in your book of some of the things you make. I wonder if we could go through some of those. What are what are what do you think are the the most worthwhile things that you make yourself?
1: Well, I can start on mm. that. Um, I think it's amazing how much we spend on beverages, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean just us as a couple, but uh, just in general. Like alcohol is incredibly expensive. If you start looking at a yearly basis, it's easy to spend three thousand dollars a year, and that's just bring in a bottle of wine a week to a friend's dinner party and, you know, really minimal drinking. So uh, making wine, mead, cider, if you're if you are into those things, um, that's a relatively simple task, a low investment and a very high return. Even roasting your own coffee is a tremendous savings. Yeah.
2: But, you know, depending on where you're living, if you're driving a vehicle, fuel is a tremendous um, life changer. Yeah, it can be.
0: Let's talk about that, actually, because that's that's one of the most you know fascinating things about your blog and your book is that you you make your own fuel is that correct can you talk about that you also have some electric vehicles some unique electric vehicles
1: yeah yeah it's funny we've spent so much time with uh messing with different fuel situations in the vehicles and now we just like to go run around on foot these days (laughs) but but, uh, now
2: we're the fuel (laughs) yeah that's burrito fuel or
1: but, um, yeah, we started with uh, experimenting with um, waste veggie oil and converting an old Mercedes, and that was kind of a tragic situation. It was so much uh, work to get an old car just road-ready to, to drive around New Mexico because you're talking hundreds of miles just to go to the next cities. And um, it, we had to learn how to clean up the grease and heat it right and other things, and we pretty much busted up that car trying to get that all going. And the car was kind of busted to begin with. A 30 old vehicle is a lot to maintain, Um, So then we got a little smarter. So we got a little smarter. We bought a Beetle, um, just a a diesel Beetle, and we started making uh, biodiesel for it, real small batches. Now, this car, an important point I want the listeners to understand is
2: the first car we converted with a big conversion kit to make it burn grease. This car is just a diesel engine, no conversion whatsoever. We switched
1: to making homemade bio at home. Right. So we would make bio and we ran that car for uh, several years on bio and, you know, went all over. And that did pretty well. I mean, that was really comparable to diesel mileage and did great. And then we got a newer diesel and it struggled a little bit with the bio. Um, we, we still ran it anyway, but it was really finicky in cold weather. Um, So we tend to just do that in the warmer months. Yeah, Um, and use better ratios so it's not uh, working so hard. So, you know, it's something that
2: you have to be willing to invest some time in and be, again, adaptable.
1: Yeah, every vehicle is different. You know, every recipe for bio is different. We have some videos on how we make it, but... But getting off
2: petroleum, as far as like, you know, having your heart fill up and feel great, it's such a wonderful thing to separate from just because of, you know, the million political and um,
0: environmental reasons. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you you describe uh, in your book, a life in the waste stream. What are the things that you're able to scavenge where you live? And how do you put those to use?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting, Manhattan, you know, in places like L.A., the waste is really tremendously abundant, most everywhere it is. Um, this we, we live, anyone alive today is living with the largest surplus of crap to exist in the history of the world. So really with a tiny bit of time and effort, there's nothing you can't obtain. But um, in retrospect, you know, we we lived in New York, man, that was a waste stream to go pick in it in, you know? <laughs> you can get a mahogany bedroom set, you know, whatever. And in fact, when I visit my girlfriend in L.A., the first thing we do is go to yard sales because I'm going to pick that waste stream because it's so terrific. But um, here in T.R.C., in New Mexico, you know, it's a poor place and very little makes it to the trash. People here use everything until, it, you know, it's very last state. So um, it was interesting. It was real slim pickings. But we got in the habit of just going out in our little electric car, you know, The day before garbage pickup and, you know, dumpster diving. And um, then we learned to forage what was out in nature, which was invasive species trees are really a lovely thing to forage because it's no harm to anybody. Um, Our community wants them out desperately because they're stealing all the water from the Rio Grande. So you can just go hack down trees with, you know, zero guilt. So, yeah, I think, you know, The Recycle Center is where we got most. The Recycle Center became good friends, um, you know they're willing to share cardboard, whatever it is. Um, so we frequented there. We, yeah. we started building out of paper actually because it was so abundant.
1: Yeah, they and free. didn't. They didn't have the right machine to bale paper, so they just wanted anyone to take it because they couldn't sell it. And the, they had the same issue with glass. They just had this abundant amount of glass, and New Mexico doesn't have a good glass recycling policy. So yeah. So we're you know here we are like okay well paper's free. It's a quarter mile down the road. It's totally abundant.
2: It's never going to run out. What the hell can we do with paper, you know? And that's what led us into winding up um, building buildings out of paper and fences because it was free and abundant. So we we eventually figured out how to use it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that. We're talking about papercrete, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Mike, you want to talk about?
0: Yeah. What is papercrete and how do you make it?
1: Well, papercrete—I like to think of it as something that took several summers away from me. <laughs> it, it is the slowest possible upcycling process I can think of. <laughs> we basically would get dumpsters of paper from the city. Uh, eventually, they would just deliver it to us, and we would—we have this homemade mixer that um, is pretty much a, a lawnmower blade in a feed tank like a cow feed tank, and it was rigged up to an old Ford 250 differential. So we'd basically drive around our property pulling this little water tank with a blade in it, and the truck that was hitched onto would just shred the paper. So you had all this torque from the truck pulling the blade connected through the differential. And uh, we would add a little cement, or you could use lime or clay. We had all different mixes we would use. And um, you'd get a, a paper block or a paper slab, or you e- even started pumping and spraying paper everywhere, which our neighbors were not at all ah! impressed with because it was going all over their homes. So, <laughs> but but it's insulative, so yeah, it's highly insulative, uh, kind of on the straw bale level, and um, free. Yeah, it's free, and Waste. aside from you know the cement being used, there's you know it's got a, you know it's an upcycled item. So
2: yeah, so it was fun. It was fun to just take pure garbage and make a building.
0: How cool. Speaking of building, let's talk a little bit about where you live and the property you live on. For those who are not familiar with your blog, uh, what's your property like and what what do you live in?
2: Well, we bought a one-acre lot in the middle of downtown, albeit a very thin town. Our population is only 7,000. But um, it's just interesting to be homesteading in downtown. And um, it was an RV park, and we really had no interest in being RV park owners um, but we like the infrastructure so every 20 or so feet there's water power sewage and we thought well maybe we'll build a bunch of these little paper domes or whatever we didn't know it's gonna be paper then but we'll build a bunch of little um kind of echo oriented environments and we'll run like a off-grid bed and breakfast and this was just like the idea right we all start with an idea and if we knew if we were if our na- naivety <laughs> If we knew what that meant, we'd never move forward. But we moved forward because we had this idea. So um, it had one building on it, a 1967 mobile home that was totally hideous. And we thought, well, actually, we brought the insurance company over. and We said, what's this mobile home worth? And they said, $1,000. And we were <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> so, so for us... This was a really great invitation because we came from New York. We never used power tools before, but we were going to become makers. That was our commitment. We were going to make everything we used to buy. So we looked at this mobile, we're like, it's only worth a thousand dollars. Let's renovate it, not put it in the trash, not contribute to the waste stream, and by doing so gain a bunch of skills. And if we make a terrible mistake and it's horrible, and we have to throw the whole thing away, what did we lose? It was worth a thousand dollars. So in a way, it was the Perfect starting project, and it worked out just amazing.
0: And the house is surrounded by a beautiful garden now. I was I was admiring the pictures on the blog this morning. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. Seems like a nice place to, to sit. Yeah, I, I noticed you have an outdoor bed too, and you also have vegetables. You grow food there, and it it can't be easy to grow food in that climate. So I wondered what <laughs> some of the some of the tricks and hacks that you've done to grow food in the desert are.
1: Well, we probably have some similar issues. Uh, I think like you guys, we like to garden mostly not in the summer, since it's hotter, it's, it takes a lot more water. So we start we've started um, putting a real emphasis in the fall winter garden because it's easier for us to keep the crops warm enough to keep going, harder to keep them cool enough to be happy in the summer. Our most recent innovation that we really like is we've just been using a 6x10 remesh, so that uh, metal remesh you buy in big rolls from a hardware store. Um, we've been just cutting that to size to go over our beds as hoops and throwing sheets over it to cool them down yeah, a little just bit. Just white sheets, because
2: for us the plant's success is based on time out of the sun <clears> or <throat> our ability to diffuse mm-hmm. the sun for them. Yeah. But you know, another challenge we had here was we had no soil. So we were this, you know, kind of decrepit RV park. Landfill. We were basically standing on landfill. We didn't know it at the time, but the Rio Grande used to run where our property is. And it had been moved with a WPA project and and the building of a dam. And um, so when they moved it, they filled our property with just landfill. So basically it's just sand. So we got, you know, really good at making soil, raising worms, um, and we have to composting. garden in beds and composting. Yeah, we have to garden in a, a raised beds uh, because we have the plague of Bermuda grass. So challenges
1: aplenty. <laughs> <are> <laughs> Is this similar to your situation, Eric?
0: Kind of, yeah. I think uh, now it gets colder there, right, in the winter too? Do you have to deal with freezing temperatures as well?
1: Mm-hmm. We do. It'll. Um, I think we have two months of the year where it drops below freezing pretty much every night for the low. Um, usually in the 20s, but sometimes in the teens. And occasionally, there'll just be a nightmare where we drop into negative numbers. So. Yeah.
2: But we, I think the way we differ in climate is we, we can have a very big temperature range in a single day, yeah. 40 degrees. And, and we can actually kind of squeak through a winter with cold frames and keep going. Yeah. In spite of those dropping temps, because by the next morning, even after a freeze, you're in a T-shirt midday.
0: Yeah, and I think what you said about keeping things shaded is going to seem unusual to a lot of people <laughs> in the rest of the country. But that's, we have that same problem here, is, mm-hmm. is keeping things cool rather than worrying about how much sun they're getting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so bright, right? Yeah. Um, you also, uh, I've always admired your homebrew irrigation system. I wonder if you could d- describe that.
1: Well, we've been through a few different generations, but early on I built a controller and I thought it'd be really great if the plants just got water when the soil was dry. So I I built a little microcontroller device, kind of like an Arduino thing, just without the Arduino part. And um, it uh, um, would turn on whenever it got dry and, and would water, but there was a lot of logic problems, like if it froze it would kind of that would also seem dry, so it would try to turn on the irrigation. Solenoids would crack, and there'd be water <laughs> flying everywhere because there's ice in the lines. And there is a uh, uh, other problems where you'd be out in the yard gardening or weeding, and it just kicks on all of a sudden. Or and the probes would also tend to decay. So there's a lot of tricks to making that kind of system work. So we went back to a timer based system. Uh, For our irrigation, but we've had a lot of projects like that where I try to make something better and then realize I've spent a lot of time making something much worse. (laughs) But it was so much fun. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But actually, so the the irrigation, just to complete that thought, is basically, you know, the most... um, available pvc pipe that we run ourselves Mm -hmm. we just drill holes where we want them or plug them when we don't want them and you know it's just cheap and easy and we didn't want to get into those planned obsolescence kind of you know uh, networks where everything has to fit the brand and we wanted to be free of all that
0: buying drip irrigation systems yeah Um, which we ended up buying um, into as well (laughs) yeah exactly i've done that too but Going back to the idea of, of failure, it sounds like, I mean, that's part of the process. I think a lot of people get really discouraged, but you guys really push through all of these experiments and you keep going. I wonder if you could speak to the the part that, that mistakes and failure play in, in what you do.
2: Well, you know, a lot of the reasons that we're here and living the lifestyle we're living come from a really deep desire to be free and to be makers and to recognize that, you know, we are essentially creative beings and the way to know that is to live that way and rely on your creativity, as opposed to, again, going back to buying pre-made goods and not really understanding them, but knowing how to use them. So we wanted to bridge that gap. We wanted to understand back to the very start of a thing. And so for us, there's really a tremendous delight in trying and failing and making mistakes And, you know, we get some stuff really right and then we make a ton of mistakes and that's the fun of it and it's the excitement. And I'd rather be doing this and using my mind and my hands and my body than sitting in a skyscraper, you know, doing something repetitive. So, yeah, it's a lifestyle of mistakes, but yet they have to derive pleasure from it.
0: I want to step back to something you said earlier. You like to wild harvest. You said weeds. What other things can you harvest in the desert?
2: We're pretty lucky out here. Yeah. Um, medicinally, we have ephedra, which is a stimulant and a bronchial opener. Mormon tea, that's the also same called Mormon name. tea. Um, ocotillo, which acts like pepto bismol. Um, in the belly, we have creosote. Mullein. Creosote is the best antifungal around. Um, what else? Gosh. Juniper, berries. Uh, we, um, I feel like everything we need is out there. We just constantly go to the desert when we need stuff. Yucca root for arthritis, for shampoo.
1: Right. That's the medicinal side. And then for food, um, I like to harvest the mesquite here. Um, when we make bread, I like to put that on the bottom and tops as a, a crust kind of thing, like people do with cornmeal on pizza. Um, mesquite's a whole process to, uh, dry, grind, In store, but it's, it's a fun thing. Um, prickly pear, uh, I think probably the most interesting thing we do with the prickly pear cactus fruits is, um, ferment them sometimes with kombucha and they just go through this amazing fermentation transformation into kind of a watermelon taste. And that's, you know, that's Mm. one of the fun things with fermenting is you get these bizarre tastes that come out once things ferment and prickly pears. I mean, ours are not that tasty on their own, but once they transform, it's good.
0: Um, or we just okay, let's. I, I'm self, total self-serving question here because we have a huge stand of prickly pear in our front yard, and it ah! produces so much fruit every year. And I struggle every year with what to do with it. I like it fresh, uh-huh. but as you say, it, its flavor is kind of it's subtle. Yeah. So as soon as you start adding things to it, it, you know, it, you lose that flavor. So you mentioned kombucha. So just a total self-serving question here. How do you make that prickly pear kombucha?
1: Well, the kombucha is a standard kombucha process with adding sugar and growing it and, you know, covering the top and things. I know you guys aren't usually into kombucha, so I won't spend much time on that part, but
0: I'm, you know, I could be, I could be, converted. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of known as kombucha haters, which is terrible, but no, I, maybe, maybe the prickly pear would get me to, to think otherwise of it. Well,
1: anyway, the last step is you're putting the kombucha in the bottle after it's fermented up its sugars, right as it goes in the bottle, you would add two tablespoons of the prickly pear juice just. Pure juice and uh, let concentrate. That, yeah, let that sit in the bottle for two weeks or more and just at room temp, and you'll get a sort of that watermelon transformation will happen. And it'll also add a little carbonation because there is some sugar in there, so in the prickly pear being added.
2: Now, you so, also have a lovely recipe for a kombucha punch with lime, salt,
1: right? It's smells. not, this is just a prickly pear punch. This is not a fermented sorry, drink. A prickly pear. So, punch. another use of the prickly pear is to make a beverage where you just add a little mint, ginger lime juice salt uh any type of sweetener you're into whether it's xylitol or honey or whatever you got um and uh you know blend it for a little bit add some ice and that's a great summer drink and i only i only use about three ice cubes of prickly pear and i'll explain that when we harvest the prickly pear we store it in ice cube trays and then uh pop it out into ziploc bags so it can sit in the freezer so you can just grab three cubes of it and uh, make a drink and not have to Break off a chunk, or however else you store it, because it is tricky to store. It's very volatile.
0: Oh, so do you do you juice it before you put it in the ice trays? Right. Yes. So there's. And, a c- yeah. D- describe that because that's an, an ongoing question on our blog: is <laughs> okay. how to juice and how to pick them. And you know, we have a we actually have a blog post on it. It's one of the more popular blog posts on our blog, and I can always tell. When it's prickly pear seasoned, because <laughs> suddenly there's questions again. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you – what's your method?
1: Okay. So uh, we have an awesome method now. I'll just start with that because it's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> and someone That's turned right. us on to this when we were at a book talk or something, and it was uh, get a steam juicer. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So a steam juicer is basically mm. a device that sits on your stove – And it has a water tray at the bottom, you fill with a few inches of water, and then it has several sections, one where you put the fruit in in a perforated basket, and then another area where it catches all the juice. So it just sits on the stove for about two hours with a bunch of hacked up fruit. And you get you get prickly pear juice juice at the end of that process. It has a hose. It feeds out. So you can leave the spikes on the fruit. You just pick them with tongs, throw them in the basket and it goes right into the steam juicer. And that's the fastest way i found to, to work with that fruit because you don't need to handle it directly. It's
2: not the best yield though.
1: The the slow way before we figured
2: that out (laughs) with a better yield is to pick those fruits with tongs, wearing welding gloves so you don't get hurt. Roll each little fruit over the flame on your stove, burn off Mm -hmm. the sharp points, then dip it in boiling water for about half a minute, then tong it back onto a a board, slice it with a knife and peel back the skin, which takes off the pricklies and that then just throw the core in a a
1: blender and you make a concentrate that goes into ice cube trays yeah that method's great but it and it keeps it raw too which is kind of cool it's not you know overheating it Mm -hmm. and all but man those stickers are all over the kitchen in the gloves (laughs) that's what i was
0: gonna say i get i get in trouble every year with kelly for doing that yeah because yeah inevitably they they i don't know how it happens but they're on the counter and then, yeah, yeah it's, it's a disaster. If you just use a sponge Arguments to wipe happen. up the
1: glycoloids, the real small ones, they're on that sponge mm-hmm. forever. As soon as you squeeze it out, you're, you know it's you're going to get. There's no way to get around the thorns, you know. Well, yeah,
2: you can go get a job, and you could buy this stuff.
1: <laughs> can you even buy prickly pear juice. Makes, no, you
2: can't. Like, well, that's another thing, Eric, that we love to talk about, which is, you know, this lifestyle basically leads you to being able to obtain things that even money can't buy. go find prickly pear. You know what I mean? Like there are things that you Mm -hmm. can have that no one
1: else gets to have. Well, when you go to a potluck with your like fuchsia jar of prickly juice, (laughs) you know, it stands out. It's like the talk of the party.
0: You also talk about mad skills and maybe that's another thing you can't buy in the book. I love that section of the book. Um, How do you go about, well, I think we've already talked about a little bit about this. You, you, you just do it, but how do you go about acquiring those mad skills and what are some of the mad skills that you're most proud of?
2: You know, for me, mad skills represents like layers of understanding the world, right? So it sounds like mundane in a way to to call filtering a skill, but it actually is. You know, how do you fill you know, what's the right filtration process for each type of thing? You have different viscosities, you know, so you start getting into all these nuances um, that eventually lead you to just like understanding the world better. So in a way after acquiring and talking about mad skills for a long time, I think essentially it's a roadmap back to common sense. You know, if you just like living in the world and relying on the world without an intermediary, which in our case would be civilization, then it's common sense, right? But um, but yeah, we could
1: talk about it a lot of ways, but I think, what do you think are your favorite skills? Well, over time we've sort of, I don't know. We lost some oomph for the bigger stuff. Like there's only so many buildings you're going to build in your life. You know, like those projects take so much out of you and they're on such a long time scale that I'm always reluctant to get into some of these things. So um, I find the domestic stuff is really uh, the skills that are the most valuable to us and really to a lot of the readers too, because anyone within an apartment or a home or wherever location they are can can, can eat <laughs> can do the same thing yeah so like sewing has become a bigger and bigger issue uh bigger and bigger skill that we use more often um like right now wendy's been making more of our clothes and we're buying uh more raw knobby silk and she's dyeing it and we've been looking at buying and they
2: uh, actually fit right
1: yeah, yeah we, <laughs> we got a lot smaller so now we need to start over on all our clothes and then we have like like we're into backpacking now. So there's all these really cool things that'd be great to have for backpacking, like Cuban fiber and silk nylon, these sort of advanced modern materials. But people haven't made much with them besides like a backpack and a tent. So, so you got to make your own. So it'd yeah. be cool. It's cool to take that skill and apply it to something new and it specifically can be used by you. So,
2: But I really love like just thinking about it now. I love doing plumbing. I mean, you kind of hate it because you don't like going to the store every 10 minutes for yeah. a part. But, you know, just the freedom of like not calling the plumber and being like, "I'm going to fix that." And then fixing it is such
1: a fantastic feeling. Yeah, honestly, I'd love to have the freedom to call the plumber and trust that they'll do the job and finish it. <laughs>
0: Well, it is a hundred dollars an hour, right? Right, yeah.
1: and and they don't always get it right.
0: How do you guys divide your your skills around the house? It sounds like Wendy, you're the you're the plumber, is that correct? And <laughs> you know, it's funny. Some of the sewing, and
2: I tend to be like the grunt laborer, and yeah, like I'm, I do almost all the landscaping and so, sort of the heavy work, and I drag him out and make him help me with that stuff, <laughs> and Mike, you like totally handles domesticity like he makes all the staple foods in the kitchen he does all the floor cleaning and vacuuming like we have totally like sex sex flip roles gender flip flip. nice
0: and mikey i take it you also do some sort of high-tech work which which i really that's one of the things i really love about your your blog is both of you is that you challenge the assumptions that it's all about um fermenting which all you know we well, obviously we all share love of low tech things but also you're not afraid of an arduino or a raspberry pi too right so tell me about some of the, the projects you've done and and maybe what you're working on now
1: well i've always been interested in utilitarian projects stuff that i would make it and we could just put it to work for us so Early on, um, when we had the grease car and we were struggling get, getting that to the right temp, I built a sensor that would sit under the hood and have a display at the driver's side so that you could see when it was time to flip the car to grease, you know, when the oil was hot enough. Um, I had another project like the um, the irrigation that didn't really work out in the end, but I was making those irrigation controllers. Uh, I was doing grow lights for a while with LEDs, but then sort of realized, like, that's not something we really need here because we got a big fireball in the sky most days, <laughs> Um, and then of course there's the battery charger for recovering batteries, just because we had so many power tools and we're living off grid and electric vehicles. We just needed to keep those batteries going because we weren't using them all the time. But finally, now I'm, I'm back to fermenters is what I'm working on now, which is my, this will be my fifth generation Yahtzee that I'm working on now. I'm trying to get into a toothbrush case. So it'll be real (laughs) small. And the idea is you can do sous vide cooking with it, which is, uh, you know, cooking in a vacuum underwater. You could do, um. Uh, fridge conversions with it where you can take your a chest freezer run it as a refrigerator you guys know all about that hack um, or um, uh, do just low temp kind of ferments from making miso to yogurt and other simple kind of tasks that just helps to have it something to'll hold the temp steady and uh, after that um, we'll probably go on to working on protein so I'll do I'll try to get a controller out this uh, this Christmas that'll do protein help us with mushrooms and um uh, algae growing at home so that you can have some home protein production which is greatly missing oh you want the brain one yeah. uh, I, is that a is, i'm poking yeah, go him ahead, Wendy. to tell you about another project that he's thinking of doing all right is this a secret project a little bit. <laughs> no, well i mean maybe you heard the episode on radio lab or the listeners had where they were hooking up little uh, electric probes the nine volt episode where they're putting a little electric probes on the head and Uh, there was a claim that it helped with concentration and focus and doing new tasks. If you basically zap yourself with nine to 18 volts of electricity on the right parts of your head. So we built that and we've been been looking at, Images and zapping ourselves, and it hurts a little. You know, it's a little bit of you're definitely getting electrocuted. A bit, but, but there is some focus, so we'll see if that comes out as a kit as well. There's some liability problems with zapping your head.
0: <laughs> Isn't that what the um Didn't the Amshenrico cult have one of those sort of headbands oh, that right, help them yeah. focus? Right. Yeah,
1: that seems a good cult. <laughs>
0: Um, I I we used to have a book. And I'm sorry I gave it up. It was like a a book of of those kind of projects from the late 1970s of circuits you could build that would focus your concentration and help you meditate. I can't remember the that's title funny. of it, but I I never got I, I had I never got around to actually building the circuits. But that that's good to hear. <laughs> and you know I want to say too that for those of us in hot climates, that temperature controlled. Thing is so, so important and so useful to be able to just hack a refrigerator and run it at whatever 65, 70 degrees. It makes life a lot easier.
2: Yeah. yeah. We have uh, friends, many who are like, how come your yogurt is coming out so great? It looks like Greek style yogurt. And I'm like, well, how are you making it? And they all say the same thing. Well, I turn the temperature on the oven real low and I leave a crack in the door and it comes out like kind of like runny snot. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's very (laughs) simple. You just have to secure the temperature. It's you know, that's that's the end game. Secure the temperature.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Getting breads to rise, you know, proofing your breads, all that. I mean, it's, it's the wrong time of year. It's a real fight. And if you, yeah. if you can get around it with an insulated box and a light bulb or a compressor, it, it makes all the difference.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of those projects, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about that I didn't ask you about or projects that you're doing moving forward?
1: Let's see.
2: You know, it's interesting. Um, maybe you've had this experience with your books, but um, I learned by having written a book that um, to write a book, in a way, you have to stop living the life that you're writing about. it it takes it away from you somewhat. And then um, when you come back around after, you know, book tour and like all that comes later, right? It's really a multi-year process. It's in a way impossible to return to where you left off. You know, I realized at least for me that that was a very delicate rhythm that took a lot to get to. And it was something that no one could remap back to. It's this very you know slippery organic process so on the other side of my book i realized that well we're kind of done building well our homestead's pretty set up hey guess what we don't have to actually get back to anywhere we've delivered ourselves to a certain type of freedom and now our like greatest joy is stepping into that next part which is I'm free, I freed myself of the need for a demanding nine to five job, my time's my own, and I can like go backpacking and do all these things I never even like thought I'd get to, you know? So I think our lives right now are in exploring that and finding really just new, exciting things to do in, this, in the
1: domain of, like, pleasure. <laughs> well, in particularly, we we were city slickers, so we never had a lot of wilderness skills. So that's why we keep bringing up backpacking and running because we, we were afraid to do those things. Like, we're afraid to go out into the wilderness for days. And afraid to go running, because what if there's a snake or a javelina? And now we've seen all of those. (laughs) We were afraid of the dark, quite frankly. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, it was, I mean, aside from going out on uh, Manhattan subway at two in the morning, we had no experience with the night. Right. (laughs)
2: So I guess, yeah, we're really like digging deep into nature and becoming more attuned to it. And um, again, I think going back to that common sense
1: and seeing where, where does this develop now? So,
2: yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah.
1: I kind of see that as the next homesteading direction will be more wilderness oriented, like more basic skills. I mean, I think maybe you've seen this for yourself, Eric, is that camping and backpacking, uh, camping and backpacking and ultra running and other things like that have really put people further out into the mountains. I think Shell Strand's book, Wild, which comes out as a movie in a few months, might be the thing that, you know, makes reis explode with merchandise <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> we'll see
0: Hopefully the people will be making that stuff themselves, not going to R.E.I. That would
1: right? be great. We'll have yeah. to put up more tutorials. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> exactly. You kind of have to have your first pack to know what you want on the second one, you know? that's.
0: So I take it you don't miss Manhattan in Brooklyn?
1: Oh, sometimes with tremendous heartache,
2: mm-hmm. yes. And every now and then I get desperate and I hop over to L.A. to see my girlfriend from grade school. And um, I go pillage the yard sales. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. We do miss it, all, of course. We've gone back a few times, but... After a few days or weeks, we're like, we got to get out of here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you both for being on the podcast. Uh, where can people get a copy of your book and what's the best way to get in touch with you? And and of course, mention your blog as well.
2: Yeah. So um, our blog is com. The book is pretty much in all the stores or couldn't be ordered. It's on Amazon. Um, if you like supporting people directly, it's on our store. Uh, do you know the URL for our store?
1: Store.holyscraphotsprings.com.
2: Great. And there, you know, we have any number of things that we're selling at a given moment, like some of Mikey's devices he mentioned, our temp controller, battery desulfator, and some herbal products uh, based on what's in season and what we've wild harvested. Yeah. I think
0: that's it. Well, thank you again, Mikey and Wendy. It's great to have you on the podcast, and I'll have links to all of those things in the show notes. So thank you again. Thanks,
2: Eric. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Wendy Tremaine and Mikey Sklar. Once again, their blog is at blog.holyscraphotsprings.com, and their online store is at store.holyscraphotsprings.com. Their book is called The Good Life Lab, radical experiments in hands-on living to leave a question for the root simple podcast call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com we are root simple on twitter if you like the podcast please leave a comment for us in the itunes store And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. We're also on Stitcher. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein, additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening.